the, the ideal uh, candidate is someone who's got some Tiger Moth time or Stearman. And those two airplanes are, are exceptional initial experience trainers because uh, they tend to amplify your faults without killing you. Welcome to Flying BC, a podcast about the people, planes, and aviation adventures in British Columbia and Canada, with your host, Warwick Patterson. As my floats touch the water, the sun's behind the trees, and the lake is barely rippled by the evening's dying the music you're listening to is called Bush Pilot Song, written and performed by today's guest, Dave Hadfield. Not only an accomplished musician, but he's also the chief pilot at Vintage Wings. I was super excited to dive headlong into the world of Vintage Warbirds with Dave on this episode. If you haven't heard of Vintage Wings, it's an organization based in Gatineau, Quebec, associated with the Michael Potter Collection which includes a Spitfire, a Hurricane, P-40 Kitty Hawk, Corsair, and one of only three airworthy Westland Lysanders, which we talk about later on. Many of us on the West Coast may have seen Dave flying the Y2K Spitfire as it winged its way back to Comox for a homecoming of sorts after its restoration. That project started with a band of volunteers at the Comox Air Force Museum. As chief pilot, Dave is one of the few pilots these days who can speak from experience about how many of these aircraft compare in the air. And we talk about what it's like to fly them and how he got to that point. A retired Air Canada captain, Dave is also a man of many talents and interests. If you stick around to the end, he offers up the backstory for one of his favorite aviation themed songs. As I mentioned on the last episode, I'll be sending out a Flying BC flight suit patch and sticker to one podcast reviewer each episode. All you have to do is write a review of the podcast on iTunes. This week I'm going to kick things off with two patches. One for reviewer ME1988-2006 and another one for Uwe Cavoke, U-W-E Cavoke. If that's you, please send me an email to podcast at flyingbc.com with your address and I'll get those out to you. It's been really great to hear from so many of you who are enjoying the show. I'd love to hear what you want to hear more about. Are there any topics that you think we should cover or people we should talk to? Okay, this episode is a long one covering a lot of ground, so let's get right into it. What I see, cause I live here in the north, and the north lives here in me. Dave Hadfield, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, Warwick. It's really nice to be invited. So I usually start by asking people sort of their journey and how they got started in aviation, but I think you come from a, a pretty aviation-heavy family, don't you? Well, it has worked out that way. Uh, there are six of us who fly, and um, you know, my, my dad was a farmer and uh, had no idea about aviation until he got a, one of those intro flights, which back in those days was $5 at the Brantford Flying Club, courtesy of his brother, and that changed his entire life. And uh, when I came along later, um, that's all I ever wanted to do was fly airplanes. And then both my brothers got into it, you know. I, and then uh, 
my uh, my wife is a pilot and my son is a pilot and now I have a niece who's at the flight college at um, in London so she's going to be number seven I guess wow so um what was your first first foray into aviation oh I, I was a baby so <laughs> I don't really remember uh my first real memories of aviation at all are of uh, a B-17 that my dad was flying for Kenting Aviation in 1960 and 61. So I was, you know, three to four years old and just forming permanent memories, you know what I mean? And um, we were down in Venezuela where they were doing high altitude photo survey. Uh, Kenting had a contract to do the first real detailed topographic survey photos of the country to make the very first uh, maps of the interior that had any, you know, relief information to them. And I would go along for the occasional test flight after they changed an engine or that sort of thing. So I have some memories of that, climbing, watching the guys. Um, they would do kind of a half somersault into the, the little access door in the front of the airplane to get up off the ramp. They called it the Gregory Peck door after the movie, 12 o'clock high, you know. I, remember I, th I thought that was really impressive the way they did that. And it had a glass nose, you know, where the bombardier used to look down that was still in the airplane. So I have a few memories of that. But then I grew up in general aviation. You know, my dad uh, came back from that uh, job and, and worked corporate and in general aviation out of Sarnia. We had a J3 Cub, and that's the first airplane I ever grabbed a stick in. I was about six, you know, and, and uh, he told me to keep both wingtips the same distance above the horizon. So I just got whiplash, you know, moving my head back and forth to make sure nothing moved. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So um, did you know pretty early on that you wanted to be a pilot, you were going to be a pilot? Yeah, that's all I ever really wanted to do as a career. And, uh, you know, as soon as I could make model airplanes, I did that. Wasn't very good, you know, at building them, but... I was a good dreamer. And then later, I joined Air Cadets, got a flying scholarship through them. Wasn't all that keen about the rest of the marching and military stuff, but I, sh I, did, want, I did want that flying scholarship. And then I made a, a deal with my dad uh, in order to further my training and ratings, where he would put up the money for an airplane. Turned out to be a Cetabria, a 7ECA Cetabria. Almost new, that one. And um, so he would put up the capital for that, we'd buy it, and then I would get all my uh, commercial and night rating, instructor's rating, or whatever is required in that. we keep track of the costs, and eventually I would pay him back. But if the airplane e appreciated in value, in other words, if I looked after it, that would reduce my debt, right? And on the other hand, if I abused the airplane, it would increase my debt because we'd sell it for less. So that was a real good motivator for me to look after that machine. And I did. Heck, at one point, I uh, waxed the the wings so much that uh, we had to re redope the tops of them. You know? <laughs> so a little, uh, little too keen. Yeah. 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 So after that, uh, I don't know how much of this story you want right now, but the uh, I I <clears throat> wanted to you know I wanted to get into a sort of a corporate or airline job right away, and um, I went out to Moncton in 1976 to get a multi-IFR because that was the first school in the country that had a license to train under actual IFR conditions and you could get a Transport Canada inspector kind of on the next day's notice whereas in the Toronto area it was more like five weeks so I did that came back with a fresh multi-IFR and could not get a job anywhere 
It was 1976. There was a slump. I went into Carl Millard's hangar. I don't know if you've ever heard of Carl Millard or not, but he had a DC-3 charter operation at the north end of Toronto Airport. And uh, I asked him for you know, a place, and he, and he said, you see that guy in the corner of the hangar who's sleeping on that cot? Yeah, he's got 3,500 hours and a DC-3 endorsement. So um, I really think you should go and get more time. So I took his advice, and I, uh, I, I got an instructor's rating as quickly as I possibly could, and then taught flying for a couple of years at Welland. And uh, also, we leased the Cetabria to that school, so I did... Uh, tailwheel checkouts and aerobatic 10-hour courses and all that sort of thing. Uh, that was really good training, right, uh, both for me uh, as well as hopefully my students. But I was 19 to 21 during that period. And uh, you don't really know that much about human nature, you know, at that point in your life. So it was a, a very useful time for me to figure out how to connect with people in an airplane and, and get the job done. Taught me a lot. After a couple of years of that, you know, I'd had enough of flogging around in the circuit in a Cessna 150. So I had job applications out all over the place and uh, got an offer from Com Air 1978 in northern Manitoba. And I was all set to go up there and then Air Canada called because they were ramping up their uh, hiring program after a long hiatus. My dad was a DC-8 uh, first officer at the time, but... Uh, you know, through him, I knew the value of seniority in the airline world. So um, that's where I went, and uh, I flew with them for 39 years, uh, flying you know most of the big jets. And then uh, during that time, were you still flying GA when you weren't flying Canada? Yeah, or? yeah, I was actually. Um, just about that time, I got hired. Uh, my dad had bought a uh, a Stomp aerobatic biplane, a Belgian Air Force trainer as you know it, it kind of looks like a tiger moth but performs much better uh, it's a, a much better aerobatic airplane four ailerons light responsive controls a real sweet handling machine and of course i i had some satabria aerobatic background so uh, we were both competing uh, he went into the, he, he went really hard into it and was into the uh, intermediate category and i was in the sportsman category and i really enjoyed that and and so later uh, I kept my hand in. Uh, at that point, I was based in Winnipeg with Air Canada on the DC-9 and then later the 727. And um, I met my wife at one of those aerobatic contests, my wife Robin. She was a judge. I was a contestant. I tried to influence the judge. <laughs> <laughs> Had some success, yeah. yeah. And then uh, we, uh, we formed a chapter of Aerobatics Canada out there. We hosted the Nationals for five years, uh, locating them at Gimli, put together a syndicate to own and operate a decathlon. And, uh, you know, that was a lot of fun. We, we really enjoyed that. Uh, and the only thing that changed for us is, you know, we had two kids and then flying around in two-seater airplanes wasn't very practical anymore, right? Couldn't really afford a bigger four-seater, although we thought about it. So we went into sailing for a bunch of years. And then I uh, moved back to Toronto in 94 because there was uh, a better opportunities at the airline. And then in about 2000, I, uh, I, I found that I really missed light airplanes. And I joined uh, what is now the Edenvale Classic Aircraft Foundation. It's about a 25-minute drive for me, so it's quite doable. And they had a Fleet Canuck, J3 Cub, or I mean, um, uh, Aronka Champ, 
and uh, a tiger moth. And, uh, you know, as soon as I started flying those airplanes around, I, it was like, uh, you know, old home week. I really, really knew what I had been missing, and I've never stopped flying vintage and antique airplanes ever since. They have a, they have a really neat program there. I was actually looking it up and seeing how they, you, can, you can basically sponsor your, if you're a pilot, you can sponsor a plane, and you get yeah. hours on the plane, and you can, yes, you can build, build up from the Canuck and into the Tiger Moth. Well, yeah, there's a lot of guys like me who were happy to instruct someone who just come out of a, you know, a more standard flying school or flight college, and they didn't have any tailwheel time, right? So uh, I would volunteer my time to sit in the right seat or the back seat, whichever, and uh, get them, get, get their tail dragger feet activated and safe. And there's a lot that goes on as well when you're flying a little old machine like that and you're not totally supported in a flying school kind of environment right you do learn to think for yourself more and um, I, I wasn't the only one helping out in that way there were four or five of us and or quite a few guys came through and you know I say guys it's both genders right lots of people uh, some of them are airline captains right now or up in the bush or corporate or you know flying water bombers they went all over the place that's cool um, so that was kind of, I guess, flying the tiger moth. You kind of got your feet wet with vintage planes and warbirds. And yes, that was my connection to uh, other things I've done later. That particular moth is an A model uh, English moth, not the ones that you see from the British Commonwealth Air Training Plan over here, which are locally built C models. So the A model is different in that it doesn't have any brakes, just has a tail skid. So that's very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> no brakes, right? So you got to think ahead, and uh, you can't can't land on pavement um, because at the end of the landing roll, there's just no resistance from the tail skid on pavement. So you you will ground loop, and and so it's a total grassroots operation, and uh, that was a lot of fun. It's a bit like a ski plane, you know, where you have to every time you come up to a solid unmoving object, you have to think about it, you know. Anyway, so uh, yeah, I flew on that. I flew that for a couple of years. Did a lot of rides, you know, I don't know, about 300 hours worth of 10-minute rides. So that's a lot of rides. And then um, I, I was in Ottawa one day for uh, uh, an event uh, that had to do with my brother Chris. And I met the chief pilot of a new collection that had been growing there called Vintage Wings of Canada, which is at the Gatineau Airport. And they had just bought a Tiger, and uh, they didn't know too much about it. I mean, they could fly it because they're all very uh, qualified uh, and experienced test pilots, but something like a moth is very arcane and very British and very 1930s, right? So um, I had learned a few things, and, and then so I got a tour of the hangar there, and I was just absolutely gobsmacked. You know, you, yeah. I don't know if you've been to that hangar or not. But oh, yeah, oh, you walk through those mackerel. doors, and it's... The yeah, ultimate tool, uh, toy box. There's this big glass wall, and on the other side of it, there's, you know, a Spitfire and a Hurricane and a Mustang, and and um, uh, well, just uh, there was a, a Stagger Wing and a Taper Wing and a Beaver and Harvard and just uh, gorgeous, and everything gleamed and sparkled. I, I just couldn't believe it. So when they said, would you please show us what we need to know about the tiger? I said, why, sure I will. <laughs> <laughs> if you show me how to. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, you well, can't make demands in a situation yeah. like that. But the, no. uh, I guess the short point, uh, version of that story is I'm still there, right? I haven't left. And now I'm chief pilot there. So, 
So yeah, you've you've had the opportunity now to fly some pretty special aircraft in that collection. Um, yeah, and I, and a, a wide variety too, which is amazing. Yep. Yeah, I uh, started off as the biplane guy, you know, so uh, I, I flew all the trainers and that kind of thing, and then uh, that went. One of those biplanes was a Fox Moth, uh, you know, the only one that's flying in Canada now, and it's still flying, and. Um, it was being brought back to a serviceable condition in New Zealand. So I had to do a lot of correspondence one winter to make sure that it was brought back to a safe, liable, uh, you know, operation, and then import it to Canada, get it certified here, and then figure out how to fly it. Because it's a weird airplane. It's got, you know, it's it's uh, not it's not a sport airplane, and uh, it's got some gotchas. Now that all went pretty well. So. Uh, I got put in charge of a fighter restoration project, which was also happening in New Zealand, uh, P-40. And uh, uh, that's a, a different story, but and it took three years to make all that happen. And there were lots of little problems and wrinkles and that sort of thing with that, as there always are. But it, the people were good, you know, honest. And um, we did have a good working relationship. We got through all our uh, snags and uh, we turned out a a serviceable airplane, and that was my introduction to World War II fighters. And you got to fly that when it was it was back here. Yeah, I did the test flights in it. Uh, the uh, it's a it's a two seater with a basic set of controls in the back seat, and uh, the chief pilot did ride around in in the back seat with me, which was very courageous of him because <laughs> there's no brakes or landing gear controls or flaps or anything in the back seat. Yeah, gutsy move. But anyway, um, yeah, we we. Uh, figured out how to uh, fly it safely, how to operate it. And there's some uh, gotchas with the P-40. It is a very unusual landing gear system. And you don't just put a lever up and down like you do with Mustangs or, or the other airplanes. It's, uh, it's a hydraulic, you're running a hydraulic system and opening valves and activating pumps and that sort of thing. And it's really easy to take the pressure out of the landing gear cylinders and, and have them collapse when you uh, apply the brakes during the landing roll. Lots of pictures of P-40s on their belly by the side of the runway, both in World War II and in modern times. So, uh, you know, we had to work through all that and try and come up with, uh, you know, a good plan for the airplane. And I've been flying that since 2009 and lots of air shows, lots of formation work, and uh, it's been a real honor, real privilege. Yeah, we were talking before we started recording that you kind of always thought about flying warbirds, but it seemed like such a far-fetched thing. But it really is just kind of put yourself in the right place, and eventually the right time comes along, and it's not inachievable. Well, uh, yes and no. I mean, you have to be there if the door cracks open, right? <laughs> I mean, talk to my brother about the space program, right? That's, that's you, you got to be in position, trained, motivated. You have to have made yourself a prime candidate, but the door does have to crack open. And and that this particular collection by Mike Potter, he's the gentleman who owns all the, air, uh, well, the, all the fighters anyway, he's a one-off, like there's nobody else quite like him in Canada. These are the only prop World War II fighters uh, regularly flying in Canada. There's a ferry uh, firefly at, at Warplane Heritage, and there uh, there's a Spitfire in Victoria, um, <clears throat> but they're not regularly flying. I think the Firefly will, but it's just been going through some maintenance. Anyway, um, it's just, uh, there's nobody like Mike. It just, you know, uh, he, uh, so th th there's there's never been a Canadian like Mike who put his own 
you know, uh, resources on the line to accumulate this magnificent collection. And, and he set up uh, Vintage Wings of Canada with some very devoted volunteers. And uh, they had the goal to commemorate, educate, and inspire. So it wasn't just playing with toys, right? And with that mandate, we, we put together some really great programs over the years to uh, introduce young people, you know, to the whole, uh, to Canadian aviation history and heritage in a way that they don't get with schools. And uh, I don't know how many young people we've influenced over the years, decades now, but it's been a lot. Yeah, and each, each aircraft kind of has an assigned history. It has a pilot that it represents and the history surround that, which is really neat. That's right. We've had to at least repaint the airplanes and sometimes restore them, right? So uh, when you do that, you have to make decisions about how you're going to paint it. And of course, that means whose colors, what, what pilot, what squadron, what era, you know, and what's the story that you want to tell, again, to commemorate, educate, and inspire. So in each case, we have picked a, a Canadian who's whose story has meaning for us and then we think you know will be a story that a young person would remember and uh, sometimes the stories are tragic you know like Arnold Roseland in the Spitfire he died in Spitfire Y2K in uh, July of 1944 but they're certainly very memorable and evocative of you know what we've done as Canadians yeah it's great um, so I, oh, I'm going to come back to the youth outreach and things like that later but um you've flown the p40 the mustang the spitfire have you flown the hurricane there too yes yeah, yeah. so, so yeah. you've kind of and the lysander which is super unique we'll talk about that too okay <laughs> um but uh if you could choose one of them which which plane would you want to take home oh well uh it kind of depends on the mission right because they're designed for different things uh, if you want to go places the mustangs are the airplane it's that laminar flow wing it goes fast and far it's got big gas tanks uh it's it's easy to get the landing gear up and down the flaps work well it's got a nice comfortable cockpit good air and heat and visibility nice wide landing gear for uh, you know cross-country landing is in airports you're not familiar with and crosswinds and all that sort of thing it is a it's like an rv8 on steroids it's a terrific airplane for going somewhere <clears throat> pardon me but it um it's not that great an airplane for turning in tight circles in front of an airshow crowd. Now, Spitfire does that the best. So if you're just going up for a Saturday afternoon uh, half-hour, 45-minute flight overhead the airfield, it's, no, you can't beat the Spitfire. <laughs> I mean, there's a couple of close seconds, but um, the Spitfire has tremendous flying qualities. It really tries to look after you while giving you, you know, huge uh, performance opportunities. It's like the world's best horse. You know, it, it's like a great, big, strong, thoroughbred horse who can do amazing things, but also is a, a nice person who tries to look after you, right? Tries to keep you in the saddle and keep you out of trouble. That's what a Spitfire's like. And uh, it's an absolute pleasure to do an air show in that. The, uh, the P-40, uh, again, it has, term, it has really good qualities. It rolls better than any of the other ones. The, uh, the Mustang doesn't roll particularly fast, and, the, and if the speed's up, then the aileron um, uh, pressures are high, so you almost need two hands on it to do, you know, quick uh, rolls. And the Spitfire doesn't roll all that quickly. Uh, the P-40, if you push the stick over, 
Well, first of all, you can with just one arm. You don't need two hands. And uh, if you bury the stick in your leg, you know, something really happens. And on a display pass uh, in the P40, I'll do two rolls, you know, in a row, which you don't normally do that with uh, the World War II fighters. But the P40, you can. And, um, you know, it, it's, a, it's a lovely and very pleasant airplane as well. The so Hurricane... The yeah, Pardon? I was gonna I was gonna say that the Spitfire always gets the glory, the Battle of Britain, Britain glory, but the Hurricane was one of the workhorses there. How do yes, they compare? Yes. Yeah. Well, the um, the the Hurricane is uh, again very very British, and if you've ever flown British airplanes, you kind of know what I mean. And it's not better, it's not worse. It's just a different design and engineering philosophy. I mean, you step into the P forty and the Mustang. Mustang's just like a uh, you know the big brother big powerful brother of a harvard and and a p40 again same kind of design concept but uh the the, the british airplanes are quite uh different quite unique and uh, the hurricane is very much that you know instruments and controls scattered all around the cockpit some you can see some you can't and um it's got a, a few idiosyncrasies. Now, where the, where the hurricane is really nice is that it, it takes off and lands in short distances. It's got a big, thick wing, right? Very thick. That's the difference between the hurricane and the Spitfire. People talk about, with the Spitfire, the elliptical wing platform and all that sort of thing. It's not the shape so much. It's the thickness. The Spitfire, the, 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 the wing is thin, and it accelerates quickly. The Hurricane, uh, you know, the, the wing's twice as thick, and it doesn't accelerate quickly. It takes off and lands in short distances. It'll carry a heck of a load if you ever wanted to, to do that. And it'll make an amazing corner, right? You can, you can pull a real tight circle in a, in a Hurricane because the, the stall speed is low. And, it, it, you know, that thick airfoil uh, really does grip the air, and around you come. But at the end of that turn, you know, the end of that hard, hard-nosed maximum performance turn in a Hurricane, you're only doing 100 knots, whereas in a, in a Spitfire, you'll be almost the same turn, but at the end of it, you're doing 130. Well, that's a big difference. I'm talking about a max turn, right, with a lot of drag. And then at, at the end of that turn, <clears throat> if you unload the Spitfire, you know, creep the stick forward, leave the power up, it accelerates like an arrow out of a bow. Uh, you know, I, but the Hurricane, it just, the wing is thick, there's a lot of drag, takes a lot of time to accelerate. So um, when it comes to something like an air show performance in the Hurricane, you can do it, absolutely you can, and it makes that wonderful Merlin noise exactly the same as a, as a Spitfire. And uh, you can probably do a, a, an even tighter show closer in, uh, but but the speed won't, is, acceleration is not there, right? So you have to be a, a little more careful or design a different show so that you're not expecting to do a lot of vertical stuff. You just, you just don't have, you can't get the energy up for zoom climbing as quickly as you can in a Spitfire. So they're all great, and I'd take any one of them home, right? Just to finish up your question, but uh, kind of depends what you want to do. Cool. Um, so I'm very interested in how pilots prepare and plan and be professional, basically, like we're all trying to be professional pilots, or we should be anyways. Um, so I'm curious about the process of learning a plane like that. Um, some of these things you can't do dual in. <laughs> You're That's going right. Fly, That's flying right. for the first time. So yeah, uh, maybe, maybe the Spitfire, like you, you kind of 
Did you ever do dual seat training with no. any of those? Or you just, no, no. In fact, I mean, there are some uh, dual controlled fighters. You know, um, they modified Mustangs that way. <clears throat> there were a few Spitfires made for the Irish as dual control airplanes right at the end of World War II. And there were some P-40s made the same way. Um, but you wouldn't want to be an instructor in the back seat of one of those airplanes trying to actually instruct someone because you just don't have enough control over events. And if the person up front does something squirrely, the airplane would very rapidly get beyond, you know, anything that you could fix from the back seat. So it's not a good idea. That The World War II training system was really good and very wisely put together, and we, we do that. So um, we are, any candidate, you know, in our system, <clears throat> pardon me, would come in with a lot of tailwheel time, already because we don't do any ab initio tailwheel uh, training you know in the collection and then um, fly the Harvard the Harvard is the pilot maker right well if they haven't gone to let me just take one step back so if, if someone has had uh, typically Cetabria flying or something you know from the air cadet world or whatever um, they haven't really experienced any any blind airplane flying where you've got a big engine in front of you and, and your visibility is totally obscured in the flare. Unless they've been the, an instructor in the back seat of a Cetabria, then they have. But anyway, so the, the, the ideal uh, candidate is someone who's got some Tiger Moth time or Stearman. And those two airplanes are, are exceptional initial experience trainers because... Um, they tend to amplify your faults without killing you. <laughs> so, you know, uh, in World War II, they could have trained people on Piper Cubs, you know, forgiving airplanes, but they needed to develop uh, a, a, large, a higher skill level, and they needed to do it quickly, and they needed to be able to weed out people who weren't going to get that higher skill la uh, level. So when you learn on a Tiger or a Stearman, uh, you know, you, you've learned to use your peripheral vision and um, your hands and feet are good and your reactions are good. So at that point, then obviously uh, in World War II, you would move to the Harvard or the uh, T-6, you know, in the States. Sometimes there was a, another airplane in between, the BT-13. But, but, you know, it's, it's the Harvard, which was the main airplane, which has many of the same systems as a, as a fighter, just not as high powered. And it's, I think most people would, would agree that it's harder to take off and land safely in a Harvard than it is in the actual fighters. So, uh, you yeah, know, the, the that's Harvard, what I heard is like, it, once you've flown the Stearman in the Harvard, the Mustang and things are a piece of cake. Absolutely. So, yeah, yeah. I, I've got 160 hours in a P-40 and I'm almost ready for the Harvard. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, well, and the, the you were talking about the lack of vision and that's definitely, I, I flew in a Harvard for the first time a week ago. And yeah. we were in a lineup of six planes at Boundary Bay with all the Cessna 150s in front of us. And sure enough, you could easily chop the tail off one of those things. Well, that's uh, happened, right? That happened at Oshkosh a few years ago with the Grumman Avenger. It wasn't anybody's fault. It's just uh, that's when you're blind, you're blind, right? You can't, can't see through a solid object. So w what we require is someone to demonstrate competency in a Harvard. So we just go through a regular flight training syllabus. And uh, when someone is good with the, with the Harvard, both with, you know, aerobatics and stall recovery and then uh, takeoffs and landings and all the different configurations. And then they'll go through the ground school, you know, for whatever uh, 
fighter they're transitioning into. And we have some very comprehensive ground schools. We put on a program called Warbird U. I don't know if you ever came across that, but yeah, yeah. you know, we were doing our own in-house training every spring for the fighters. And then a bunch of people, a number of, of different volunteers kept saying, can we sit in on that? And those classrooms filled up and we realized, well, maybe we should sell this as a as a course, generate money for the organization and also fulfill the mission. And so we developed, um, uh, you know, ground school courses that are very comprehensive, PowerPoint-based, a few videos as well. And they're taught every year for annual or current training by the people who are actually flying the airplane or going to be checked out in it. So it's, it's, it's not just pictures and, and, and videos from World War II or anything. It's, it's this is how, this is what you're going to run into, so you got to think about doing that. And it's modern world, too. You know, there's, there, the aviation world has changed since 1942. Anyway, so uh, once someone has got the ground school done and they're, they've spent lots of time in the cockpit of the fighter figuring out where everything is and gone through all the emergencies and, and they seem to know what they're doing, we'll go up for the, in the Harvard again for a backseat checkout, right? So if you can fly the Harvard from the back seat, it doesn't have to be, you know, you don't have to do it perfectly, but as long as you're safe in the back seat of a Harvard, then you will be safe flying the fighter. And uh, then the final step is an overwing briefing in the airplane, in the, in the fighter, and then off you go. You're on your own. Have fun. Enjoy yourself. And um, we have some guidelines about, uh, you know, where to fly, how to fly, what to do, what not to do in the fighters to keep the risk low. Uh, but, um, you know, as as the chief pilot, I don't really want to be in the back seat if somebody's doing his, their first trip at a fighter. You know, Harvard, yes, I do check rides in the Harvard. But, uh, uh, but no, even though we have a two-seat P-40 and a two-seat uh, Mustang, although the Mustang is just a jump seat, there's no controls, I, I really don't want to be there during the their, you know, the new pilot's first experiences. I no. The, the World War II system was better. Yeah, get to the point where you trust them and send them off. Yeah, yeah. sooner or later you have yeah. to do that as, a, as yeah. an instructor or chief pilot. So the first time you strapped on the P-40 or the or the Spitfire, um, you'd obviously done a lot of preparation, but um, oh, yeah. what, what was that feeling like when you pushed the pushed the throttle forward on the Merlin for the first time, say, and were, were you a little hesitant, nervous, or were you ready to do this? Well, the the sheer power of it is a bit of a surprise the first couple of times. I mean, you get used to it, but it's very noisy. And you think a Harvard is noisy, but um, when you when you uh, roll up a, a V12, you think you've got full power on, right? And you're aiming for something like in the P40, you're aiming for about 45 inches of manifold pressure because it's a supercharged engine. And you, you think you, you've got full power on because there's a lot of noise and you're feeling a lot of acceleration and you've got your foot in hard to counteract the yaw. Uh, but then you look down, you're only doing 30, 32 inches of manifold pressure <laughs> and you've got all this other stuff to go and that's for a reduced power takeoff. So uh, that is all very surprising. And then no matter how uh, much preparation you do, as soon as you get in the air, you're fumble-fingered about, uh, you know, getting the gear up and the flap up and the power settings and the trim and, uh, you know, rad flaps and cowl flaps and all that sort of thing. It takes, it takes you know, it takes 10 hours to kind of settle down in any airplane. They're all kind of the same. You know, all the fighters are the same in a certain way. And they're all trying to get you <laughs> to a certain extent. But... Um, they all have their idiosyncrasies. 
I shouldn't say they're allowed to get you. That's that gives the wrong impression. Um, they're actually designed not to kill the pilot. Like they're designed to fulfill a successful mission, right? To deliver ordnance on the target, and that that mission is a failure if somebody dies trying to take off or land. So, so the fighters are not out to get you. They're just, they're just unforgiving. That's all. Right. Yeah, you got to be on your game. Yeah, you do. Yeah. Uh, one thing I I haven't flown a Spitfire and everything, obviously, but you must get a sense of. Um, responsibility flying something like that in terms of you think of the people who sat in those seats before you in world war ii and um teenagers going to battle in these things um you, you well, must have yeah I, I know yeah i know what you're getting at there and uh that does that feeling does show up from time to time but it's generally kind of a distraction right so um if you're a commercial pilot you're used to f flying airplanes that, that cost more money than that right if you're if you fly an airliner or something and you got a lot more people sitting in the chairs in the back right so the idea of responsibility um, is something you've already dealt with in a, in a commercial pilot's career so it's not you actually put that aside because you're used to it and um, you 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 really want to focus directly on the job you know I'm going to be uh, putting the power there, that manifold pressure, that power setting. I need to see this oil pressure, oil temperature. Don't forget, don't forget the coolant. Don't forget the the rad flaps. You know, fuel. Fuel's a big deal in all the fighters. How to get the gear up and down. How to do it in an emergency. So you're dealing with all that sort of thing. But every once in a while, you look around and go, "Wow, look at the cannons sticking out of the wing. That's pretty cool." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, those and are the moments you trash. Or, or you're doing a um, a rejoin in formation, right? And all you're concerned with is the ten o'clock or the two o'clock line and the sliding in and getting the speeds judged and trying to get into formation without making an idiot out of yourself. Uh, and so that's your focus. But after a while, you look around and think, "Hey, I'm flying formation on a Lancaster or a Mustang or something," and uh, it is a special moment. And I would highly encourage everybody to check out your YouTube channel because you have some great helmet cam videos where you, you walk through the whole process and you narrate what it's like flying these things. And you can see you're, you're doing the checklist and pointing at things, and it's really eye-opening. Well, th thanks, Warwick. I, uh, yeah, that's a bit of a new thing for me, and I've been trying to do it. Um, I should have had uh, a helmet cam on you know, a long time ago, and so should everybody else, and we should be documenting every flight. It's useful from a flight operations and maintenance point of view, right, uh, to, to, to sit down after the flight and look at the helmet cam and see how things went right or how things could be improved. And the maintenance guys, they do want to see the temperatures and pressures. Uh, so it, it's good from that point of view, but there are just so many wonderful, evocative uh, mental snapshots I have that um, have not been documented. I mean, they're just they're in my brain and no one else's, and it's it's a shame. So, I, I now I mount one on my uh, my, uh, my helmet, and um, I just use a slim little Sony AS50 uh, because it's narrower than a GoPro, and it fits in the in the little wee canopies. Yeah, I've been using one as I transitioned to tailwheel on the mall, and I, I put it out on the wing looking back at basically the, the plane and the wheels, and it's really helpful to review and see what my tailwheel was doing and 
Sure. So sometimes in the moment you're like oh, a little frazzled, you can't tell. So it's good to go back and review. Yeah. Well, so anyway, I've been making these videos and trying to learn how to edit them and, and then voice over with narration. So that's all uh, a new experience for me, but uh, making some progress with it. So thanks for mentioning that. Yeah, I'll put it in the show notes so people can <coughs> click on it and go see it. Sure. Um, so, and you were lucky enough to fly the Spitfire Y2K across the country. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that, that aircraft and what coming back to Comox was all about? Yeah, that was an incredible summer. I still kind of pinched myself and wonder if it really happened. But uh, I got I got the absolute dream email on, in um, January or, well, January, February of 2018 from Mike Potter. And he said, Dave, would you get a check out in the Spitfire this spring and then take it out to Comox and back? And by the way, show it at Oshkosh and uh, see what you can do there. So uh, I couldn't believe what I was reading as an email, right? I mean, so I uh, made sure the date wasn't April the 1st. <laughs> and then and then immediately wrote uh, Mike back, uh, you know, uh, sure, uh, glad to help. Anything I can do to, to uh, push the program forward. Send immediately. <laughs> uh, so that, that consumed the rest of my 2018. And it was just a, a magnificent opportunity to... Uh, present that airplane and the Canadian story behind it to what I figure is about a million people over the course of the summer at the different events I went to and fulfill some uh, promises and some obligations. Um, it soaked up uh, all the airmanship that I have, you know, because uh, that that flight would have been a lot easier in a Mustang. Like a Spitfire is designed to take off, shoot at a Heinkel and come back down and land right and uh not fly 2500 miles each way through uh well that summer there were 500 forest fires burning in bc when i was trying was to get a bad back year, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, we had rest freshly restored that airplane and um so there was a little bit of doubt you know you never know when with an airplane until you put 25 or 30 hours on it right if everything's done properly so there was a bit of a scramble that spring to get that time onto it. I did a few air shows here in the Southern Ontario era, era, area but everything worked out well. Uh, we outfitted it with bladder tanks in the gun base, four little 12, 12 and a half gallon tanks. So that gave me 50 extra gallons, which was a little more than an hour's extra range, usually cruising at a ground speed of around 240 miles an hour or so. Um, depending on where you put the throttle, right? So, uh, you know, you could, we could actually make some distance in it. And that was very helpful because if I had just been able to, or just tried to do that trip on internal fuel, would have been a lot of takeoffs and landings. And, and there are times it wouldn't have been prudent to go because, you know, the crosswinds here or the low ceiling there, that kind of thing. It, the extra gas made a big safety difference. Anyway, uh, <clears throat> I met some wonderful people um took it out to uh initially i stopped at windsor along the way you know there was a, a world war ii guy showed up on an open house day there he lives in london his name is uh, tom hennessy and uh he, he walked up to me i thought he was about 75 years old but turned out he was 93 sharp physically fit said he'd flown them out of malta and italy and uh I'm looking around thinking this 
doesn't sound like it's true. Maybe somebody's trying to put one on me, you know. But uh, some of the other people in the hangar were nodding their head up and down. So I said, well, we better put you in the cockpit. So I walked over to the side of the hangar to get a little step stool, came back, and he, I watched him jump up on the wing and swing a leg in, hop into the seat, get himself squared away, shake his shoulders, grab the stick and the, the throttle. You know, if the thing had been parked outside, I, he might have taken it. <laughs> he was yeah. quite a guy. I met people like that all the way across the country. Uh, Oshkosh was the next stop, and uh, that was tremendous because I don't know uh, what your goals in are in aviation but to fly a fighter into Oshkosh and then fly it in the display I mean that's that's on the bucket list of a lot of pilots right and it was sure up front and center on mine so I got to do that and uh, you know that that restoration of that Mark 9 spit was uh, complicated there were a couple of times when we took three steps back to go one step forward you know and uh, there had been some <laughs> uh, very unfortunate uh, contracts made with people trying to supply us parts. Anyway, it was a difficult, complicated, long, and expensive restoration. So um, when we finally uh, got that airplane to Oshkosh, and then we came away with uh, five trophies with it, Reserve Grand Champion Warbird and Phoenix Award and Judges Appreciation and, and Gold Wrench, Gold Wrench, Man, uh, we were so uh, so happy to see that the the effort and the expense and the sweat from people, the provenance that we had put into that airframe, was being acknowledged by the best Warbird judges in the world. So, uh, man, I was happy about that. Uh, and then we headed off. I headed off west and. Uh, very interesting to just take a Spitfire and go cross country, right? You land in some little Washington County Memorial Airport in the middle of nowhere, right? That's got a little flight school and a and a, you know um, crop duster operation at it, and you pull up in front of the pumps, and the guy comes out from the shack, and he can't believe what he's seeing, and you say, "Hey, you got 90 gallons of 100 low lead I can buy?" And he says, "Sure do, Mister," and uh, you show him where to put it in, and you go into the shack do your own thing and then you come back out and everyone in the whole airfield's coming over in bicycles and and cars and motorcycles and you know golf carts and whatever and and then you start it up and crank up and and head off again uh, it's just uh it, it was it's difficult to take a spitfire across a, a route like that <clears throat> and it, it like i say I, I i had to do that very carefully and use all my you know whatever i've gained over the years in airmanship um, but flying across the U.S. is the best place in the world to do something like that, right? Airports everywhere and lots of support if you need it. Uh, well, at least uh, the best will and intention in the world to support you if you need something, right? And uh, so that would be very different to try and do it across Africa or Asia. But, uh, but um, I didn't have any support uh, with me, right? There was no support airplane. Uh, I had support on the telephone, right? But but basically, I had a pair of ice grips and a Swiss Army knife and a screwdriver and a, and a cell phone, and 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 that was it. And um, <clears throat> yeah, that, that there were a couple of times I I had to make some, uh, you know, not exactly buckshee repairs, but I had to I had to make a fuel cap gasket one day, you know, things like that, right? Right. 
and, no, and no no major hiccups along the way. No, that that restoration was done really well, and the guys built the systems of that Spitfire in a tremendously robust and effective professional way. And it's also good for a, an airplane like that to fly regularly, right? It's it's one right. you don't fly for a month that seals and gaskets dry out and and systems stop working. If you fly it for every, once, it you know if you fly them regularly, they 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 can work very well. And um, I yeah, I flew that thing out to Comox. When we got there, the mechanic came out. There are you know Paul Tremblay, the chief of Vintech Aero. Uh, and basically, you just clean the plugs, did an oil change, look around, and uh, and that's it. And, and then I flew it all the way back. And at the end, when I landed back in Gatineau, I, I could have just topped up the oil and coolant, put gas in, and carried right on to Halifax. So the job they did rebuilding that airplane was superb. And the golden wrench we, we got for that at uh, Oshkosh was very well deserved. And now, um, when you made it to Comox, that, that plane... Started out life um, at Comox Air Force Museum, and it was a big homecoming, basically, for that plane. Yes, yes. Well, that's a big, long story all by itself, right? And there's a terrific article about it in issue number 81 of Warbird Digest by James Church. And he did more research into that than I, I thought was even possible. Did a great job. I and love so, that magazine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's just... Uh, that, that's... You know, we learned things from that article that we didn't know. And um, that Spitfire was built uh, pretty much at the end of the war, you know, about January of 45. was assigned to an RAF squadron, but didn't see operations because the war ended. Then it was sold to the, or, you know, sold slash given to the South African Air Force. And it, with a number of other Spitfires, they put on a, a slipper tank, you know, their version of a belly tank. And uh, they ferried those airplanes on their own wings all the way down to South Africa, which is a heck of a trip. And uh, <clears throat> it flew there until it suffered a landing uh, gear accident in 1951. So then it was sold for scrap, but the scrap dealer didn't crunch it up. I guess he couldn't quite bear to do that, right? So he put it up on top of a heap. But it slowly disintegrated over the course of the next 30 years. And a guy named Mark DeVries from South Africa um, collected its remnants and uh, you know some other remnants of, of the, those exact Spitfires from from that generation, from that flight that had all come out together, and he started uh, putting them all together. Now the airplane has provenance; it's TE two nine four, and uh, that's what's written on the you know frame five, the the firewall of the airplane. But uh, there wasn't really any way we could use that original metal back as we rebuilt the airplane. So I say rebuilt, but it's the same question that everybody talks about with is it a restoration or is it a replica or is it a rebuild or is it a repair? But I'll tell you, provenance is a different thing. Provenance is a human story. And uh, that's the provenance of that airplane. And we've added to that provenance here in Canada as the Comox Group and ourselves you know, put it back together into flying condition. I happened to have visited that airplane in 2006 um, when I was put in charge of the P-40 restoration. And I wanted to paint, you know, we wanted to paint the P-40 in the colors of Stocky Edwards, who lives in Comox, highest scoring surviving Canadian fighter pilot. He's going to be 100 in June, by the way. So wow. uh, we got we to do something about that. And um, I went out there to meet him, chat with him, uh, asking for his permission to paint the airplane in his colors. And, uh, 
you know, by the way, what were those colors? You know, did he have any pictures and things like that? And uh, while I was there, uh, and, and Stocky's a great guy, Stocky and Tony, his wife, uh, most uh, pleasant and fl friendly and capable people. And, uh, you know, Stocky still got all his marbles. Great guy. Anyway, um, he took me over to the Air Force Museum in Comox and showed me the Mark 9 Spitfire project at the time. And um, while the new metal was being assembled, all the old metal was still there, right in a loft right beside the airplane. And everybody who was coming out to volunteer to build that new one, you know, they, at any time they could climb those stairs and touch the old metal and, you know, look at all those bits and pieces. And there's a connection being made the whole time you're doing that. So there is provenance, even if it's a bit like the ax that your great-grandfather had, you know, that's been in the family, and it's still great-grandfather's ax, even though it's had two different heads and four different handles over the years, right? It's yeah. still your, it's, and it's been hanging on the same two pegs in the woodshed for all that time, right? So it, it's, it's that kind of a story, but th that's the main point to all that, is that it's a human story, and there's a human understanding and acknowledgement that the story has value the story has is worth something and the story is connected to that machine now the comox people great bunch of people they they started restoring the uh, mark Gervais, by the way let's just you know tie up all the loose ends he emigrated from south africa brought the uh project with him uh, but then he unfortunately got sick and, and died at a fairly young age and before he did he passed that along to the comox air force museum and they started the y2k uh, project to uh, they picked Y2K because it had, the century hadn't turned yet, and also those are the call sign of 442 Squadron um, back then, and 442 still operates from that field, right? And they 442 flew Spitfires at that time. Anyway, uh, so the uh, they started its restoration, but the, uh, the the hard and unfortunate and unpleasant reality of of uh, rest restorations of, of that caliber or that size are they're really really expensive and they're not tens of thousands they're not hundreds of thousands they're millions and um it, it, it you do want volunteers and you do want enthusiastic people and you want a team that supports the whole enterprise but someone has to write checks that are worth millions of dollars so you either have to fundraise for that or you have to find a particular benefactor or an owner and uh, they, you know, that, that, that didn't seem, that didn't work out for them, you know, to come up with that kind of funding out there. So at one point uh, they were going to, as I understand it, um, they were going to sell it or restore it as a non-flying airplane or something along those lines. And that's when uh, Mike Potter said, well, uh, I'll take it over and I'll do, I'll complete the restoration. You know, I'll, I'll spend all the, the money on the big ticket items because they hadn't been done at that point, the wings and the, the engine and the propeller and the cockpit. Yeah, and, you know, he'll own it, but he promised back then that he would come bring it back someday in the future and show the folks from Comox that we were keeping a Spitfire alive in Canada, keep one flying, and it's theirs. You know, it's the one that they started. And um, he did. He honored that promise, and I was the guy in charge of making it happen. And uh, it was a wonderful, wonderful experience and opportunity for me to take that airplane out there and just park it beside the museum on the grass. We had a few open house days, you know, and all kinds of people came up to me. They still had their T-shirts that they bought back 
bought, you know, to, to raise money way back then. And they told me about what part of the airplane they worked on and, you know, the uh, and all that kind of thing. And, uh, and, and then I, I took the thing flying. I did a couple of, um, well, you're not supposed to call them air shows. I, I did a couple of reckies around Comox <laughs> in the airplane. And then uh, I got people uh, later who came up to me and, and uh, they, literally they, they, you know, their, their eyes watered and tears came out and all that sort of thing because an airplane like that had meant, had come to mean so much to them. And you know, the RCAF at the end of World War II had 11 Spitfire squadrons. We had a lot of Canadian Spitfire pilots. That's not including the Canadians who were flying in the RAF, right? Flying Spitfires yeah. were there too. Yeah. So uh, Spitfires were a major part of our contribution to World War II. Yeah, I, I think I went and saw that plane in Comox when I was a kid too in the 80s. And yeah, it was sure it was a big deal. So in your videos that we mentioned earlier, you 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 say a couple times that uh, your IQ drops by half uh, when the engine of one of these things starts up. <laughs> yeah, and, and you're, you're doing that as you're going through your checklist. So can you explain that to me? Oh, well, I stole that line from Rob Erdos. <laughs> He's one of our pilots. Uh, uh, at that time, he was working as a test pilot for the National Research Council Flight Lab in, in uh, Ottawa. And he's got a great sense of humor, so I couldn't resist stealing that line. But it is a bit true because no matter how much you train and brief and prepare yourself, you know, as soon as that engine starts, uh, there's a lot of noise, there's a lot of vibration, um, things are uh, bouncing, uh, the temperatures are going up, right? The coolant temperature is rising, and uh, people are all looking at you and um, all of a sudden you find that half of your preparation and half of the things you swore you were going to remember have vanished. And also sometimes it's an air show involved, right? And you're thinking about the formation and the passes and the rejoins and the brakes and all that kind of thing. And it is really easy to get distracted to the point where you forget to open the cowl flaps or you for, you know, maybe you're an auto lean on the mixture as you taxi out and you forget to go to auto rich for the takeoff and the, you know there are lots of different ways you can make a, a, a silly mistake in a fighter which can bite you so uh, at, at vintage wings we have uh, checklists for all the airplanes that are in the same format they're flip chart flip chart format they have the same font the same colors the same categories and um, we use them before takeoff now, once you're in the air, you can't really refer to them unless you have an emergency or something um, be because you haven't got enough hands, right? The, the, the fighters are not stable in flight. And uh, as soon as you let go of the stick, they kind of fall off in one wing or the other. So you, we use a memorized, you know, before landing check and things like that. But uh, yeah, we use a checklist before engine start and before departure just to uh, prevent, uh, any, you know, an unfortunate and embarrassing incident. I think it's important for every pilot too, because I, I know having flown my 172 for three years, sure, you get kind of lazy a little bit. You're like, I know what I'm doing. Like I know every switch I need to switch, but once you start jumping from plane to plane or yeah. flying a plane, you don't get to fly super often. You do need to stick with that stuff. Yep. Um, so let's talk about the Lysander because there's less than a handful of those things flying probably just as many pilots who fly them and they are a quirky bird yeah yeah i think there are three flying now because one just came back into service or well, well was finished its restoration in england and um <clears throat> yes the the lysander is a weird airplane I, I really enjoy flying it but it's challenging the the world war ii fighters 
like I said before, are not particularly hostile. And if you if you have a background in Harvard, and then someone shows you the fighter and how to make the fuel system work and how to make the gear go up and down and how to start the engine, chances are you could get it around the patch, you know, off and back onto the ground again without breaking it. You could. But the Lysander, no, it'll just kill you. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's a little extreme to say that, but, you know, you find yourself sitting on a branch sawing away at the wrong side of the branch, right? Um, it's got a, it has some design faults. Um, it has great capabilities, but um, do you want me to go into that? Or, like those, those. Yeah, those? like it, from the video I was watching, it's basically like, you have to rethink how you fly the plane yes. in a lot of ways. Yeah. Especially if you want to explain the slats and the flap system yeah. and things like that. Well, it was designed as a battlefield observation airplane in the World War One kind of idea, right? That didn't work out in World War II. But, so the pilot's going to be sitting up there. And the visibility is superb. He's got one hand on the stick, one hand on the throttle. And no matter how much he cavorts that thing around to look at something on the ground, the flaps and slats extend or retract all by themselves. And that operates on angle of attack. And there's quite a few airplanes that use angle of attack to extend the slats, you know. That's a Handley Page patent from about 1922 or so. Uh, the 109 had that. Uh, the later model Sabre had that. So that's, that's not unusual to have the slats coming out by themselves. Uh, but in the Lysander's case, that's geared very cleverly to uh, the flaps, the inner flaps as well. Well, just the flaps. That's all, that's all there is, inner flaps. And um, so uh, it's, it's, you have no control. You can't extend them. You can't retract them. You can't lock them in. You can't lock them out. So th there are some oddball ramifications of that. If you're taking off and you get the power up and then you push the tail up, uh, like you would in a Satabri or something. Well, you start, you're starting off with the flaps and slats completely extended. And as soon as you push the tail up, the angle of attack decreases and your flaps and slats retract. They wouldn't retract fully, but they retract quite a bit. And theoretically, your, your takeoff distance is going to increase. You know, that's just not something. So we'd basically do with, I mean, I don't do a quite a perfect three-point takeoff, but I get the tailway off the ground an inch or two, but then it then it thing just lofts into the air, leaps up into the air all by itself. Anyway, and then when you're on approach for landing, if you, say, got a little bit uh, high and through bad technique you push the nose down a little bit to, to you know, um, increase your descent angle, well, as soon as you do that, the angle of attack decreases, your flaps and slats retract somewhat, the drag decreases, the speed comes up, they retract more, and you shoot way long on approach. On the other side of the coin, if you're a little slow and you pull the nose up by mistake, they extend more, the drag goes way up, the speed drops back, the, uh, they extend even more, and then you start with a very steep rate of descent in a nose-high attitude, right? And then if you open the throttle quickly, it's a Bristol Mercury engine which has um, an over-muscled accelerator pump in the carburetor. And if you jam the throttle, if you're coarse with the throttle in a Mercury, it'll squirt way too much gas into the carb to richen it, you know, for the acceleration. It's just, it's set up, it's not, not well designed, that particular accelerator pump. And it'll kill the engine uh, for a little bit anyway. And um, if, you're, if you're coming down like a helicopter onto the ground and all of a sudden the engine quits, you have no recourse because by the time 
you, you try and get the nose down again, which takes a big trim movement, and gain some speed to flare, you're already on the earth. And there are lots of pictures of Lysanders uh, pancaked on the ground with their wings draped over them like dead tree branches, and that's what that's all about. So, I mean, yeah. that, that's, that's one weirdness, but it's compounded by the fact that the elevator in the airplane is not um, strong or capable enough, doesn't have enough influence to control the airplane at either end of the envelope. And that was a big surprise to the test pilot in 1935 or 6, whenever that was, Harold Penrose of Westland in Yeovil, uh, Somerset in England. And he, he went up flying, and of course, in his, on the first flight of the airplane, he climbed overhead, and then he, he uh, simulated an approach and landing, and he found that with the power off and the stick full back, he couldn't get the nose up, didn't have enough elevator authority to make that happen. And uh, so he experimented while he was up there and, and, and found out if he added power and, and the slipstream effect, he would make the elevator more effective when he could lower the tail. And so he kept that going and got it back onto the ground. And he recommended to Westland, to Teddy Petter, the owner of the company, that they completely redesign the tail of the airplane. But the air ministry wanted that airplane right away. You know, it was fast and a you know, modern airplane, cutting-edge technology, right? Because everything else was biplanes. This is just a little bit before the hurricane and the Spitfire. And um, so they came up with a kind of a buckshee fix, which is the horizontal stabilizer, which initially had been fixed, you know, not, not moving. They put the front of it on, they, they hinged it and put the front of it on a jack screw, like a, like a super cup, like, like a Piper Cub. And, and, and that became the trim mechanism rather than tabs. And uh, that did give the elevator enough authority to control the airplane either in the, you know, the, the approach or the departure mode. But um, you, you, that means you have to pre-trim the airplane for the next phase of flight. Because what, what happens is if you, um, if you have the trim in the middle, you have that jack screw and that horizontal stabilizer in the middle, and then you're coming in to land, and you pull the power off and pull the stick back, the nose will keep dropping, even if you have the stick buried into your spine, and then the main gear will hit the ground and you do a front somersault. And, and conversely, if you're coming in to land, again, the trim's right in the middle, and somebody pulls out on the runway and you, you do a full power go around, well, the nose will rear up and you'll be pointing at the moon, even with the stick jammed right up into the instrument panel. So, you know, you need to pre-position the horizontal stabilizer before the next, before you need it in order to get the control authority that you need. So that's a bit different, <laughs> you know, so, uh, you know, you're coming in on approach. That's a lot to think about. Yeah, yeah so you're coming in on approach and you, you, you hold the stick kind of rigidly, embrace your elbow, and then start cranking the trim back so that when you do pull the power off and flare for the landing, you've got what you need to make it happen. And go-arounds, you do them very carefully and incrementally, you know, in thirds. You know, power up a third, trim, 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 power up a third, trim, trim, trim. You take off in a mistrim situation, too. In case you have an engine failure at 100 feet, you've got to have enough authority to flare the airplane, right? And you won't have time to retrim or anything. So that's all, it's all doable, right? But, but and it's a, it's a joy to fly because you can take off and land that thing like a cub, pretty much. Yeah, if it wasn't so rare, it would be a fun backcountry plane. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it also doesn't have brakes that work very well. 
Like they didn't have, they didn't work very well in World War II because they didn't need them. They're just out in big uh, grass pastures, right? They're pneumatic um, drum brakes and expanding tube, right? Pneumatic expanding tube drum brakes. And uh, there's a little little valve down there, a little foo-foo valve. And it's the British system where you you squeeze the uh, bicycle lever on the hand on on the spade grip on the end of the stick, and if you're Rudder pedals are centered, you'll get e equal braking, even braking, but if the rudders are asymmetric at all, then you get brake on that side, right? Uh, the Spitfire and the Hurricane and the, even the Lyce, uh, Lancaster are all the same. Uh, and it, it works very well in those fighters, but in the Lysander it doesn't work very well because that little diverter valve that's moving the air left or right, it just, uh, it's, a, it's a finicky little thing. And so often you end up basically like that A-model Tiger Moth you know, with no brakes. Now the airplane is very good aerodynamically, and you can control. It doesn't want a ground loop. It's actually, it, it'll handle a crosswind well, and and um, it doesn't want a ground loop. And you'll have aerodynamic control simply from the rudder itself down to pretty much walking speed. But sometimes you can land the Lysander, and you can't get it to the ramp because of the wind. You know, you can't turn cross the wind or whatever you have to do. And and too many of our taxiways are are so skinny right now. Right, they're pavement and. I, you have to use little tricks like running along with one main wheel in the grass and the other one in the pavement so that one ha is dragging you one way right but you but you've got brake on the other side so you can keep it straight uh, you know, you're, you're you're doing some buckshy things like that until you can get a mechanic to uh, to look at it anyway and you uh, so kind of coming back to the outreach to the cadets and the kids too you took that plane for was it two summers around Ontario? Yes. Sort of barnstorming. Yeah, well, we had a wonderful sponsor, the Lysander Fund, an investment fund, and uh, set up by John Carswell, a tremendous booster and supporter of aviation heritage in Canada. Uh, I could talk, uh, uh, well, I will talk about him a little bit later if I get a chance. Uh, a great guy, and he ended up buying buying the airplane from from Mike and I'm going to be flying it from him or for for, for John but anyway uh, he was a sponsor for two summers 2015 2016 and he basically uh, put up a bunch of money and said go show off the airplane take it to every uh, pancake breakfast and fly in and air show that you can that that you think it's appropriate to do so you know and I didn't have to try and scrounge the amount of money that the thing actually costs right which is not much different than the fighters if you factor in the overhaul cost for that engine. That, that Bristol Mercury is the only one flying in North America and is uh, trying to get it over. I heard there's, a, there's a story behind oh, that, yeah. There are no <laughs> spare parts and, and trying to get an overhaul, you know, it, it'll cost a vast amount of money whenever it has to be done. So uh, it, it, it was, so I couldn't charge, a, 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 you know, a a flying club what it would actually cost to bring the airplane there but under the sponsorship I was able to do it and uh, it's all about outreach and at the same time that I was doing that our yellow wings program the vintage wings of Canada yellow wings program was taking up air cadets all across well at one point the whole country but they also uh, at this time uh, the province of Ontario and uh, you know, we just, uh, they would park at, at a number of different locations and take up cadets every day in uh, World War II trainer. But then I would join them in the Lysander. And they had the chance to, you know, gee, I'd like to go up in that one. And that was a lot of fun, you know, take a little wee kid up there and and uh, and hang around the countryside and look at the crops or do big wingovers and all that kind of thing. 
uh, I, I'm give, maybe I've given the wrong impression about the, the Lysander. Um, uh, you know, you, you got to pay attention to those factors I mentioned, takeoff and landing. But when you're in the air, it's a sweet airplane, and uh, you can do a lot with it. I did a, I took her to an air show once, and uh, unfortunately, I didn't get to fly in that show because the wind came up to 30 knots, and there's no way to safely handle it on the ramp. But on the Friday, the, the practice day, people were watching me cavort around, and. Uh, uh, Eric Dumigan, the photographer, he uh, he said it was really interesting to watch your slats and flaps go in and out during all your different turns all by themselves. You know, so this the thing really did work. Yeah, is it does it feel seamless when those slats and flaps start coming in and out, or do you feel it and have to adapt? Yeah, to no, it is totally seamless. You you don't have any uh, sensation that it's happening at all. You have to look and see if they're out or not. Yeah. Right. Huh. Cool. Um. So you. Um, your wife is also uh, a pilot, and she is a director of the 99s, and you've done a lot of outreach with these warbirds and with youth. Um, I'd love to get your ideas and opinion on how we engage sort of the next generation into aviation and general aviation. Well, yeah, uh, Robin is a director of the 99s, you know, the, the, the whole international group. And she's very devoted to exactly what you say. In fact, two years ago, she gave a presentation to Mark Garneau, the uh, Minister of Transport, to how to get more young people, particularly women and indigenous people, but just more young people into flight schools. There was supposed to be a big pilot, well, there was a pilot shortage for a few years there, right? Uh, not at the moment, unfortunately. But anyway, so, you know, Robin tabulated a, a whole plan to, to encourage young people and one of the key items is to bring it into the school system at a young age you know to, to, to teach aviation teach aerodynamics teach theory of flight and then get it to all the guidance counselors in in the country right you, aviation is a program that young people can do and uh, there's there's lots of uh, people who doesn't and gender doesn't matter here lots of young people who just never consider it because they're not exposed to it and that's one of the best ways so the the, the more that you can uh, contact young people uh, the, the the bigger pool of pilots we'll have for the country in the future. But there's nothing like taking uh, a young person and exposing them directly to one of these heritage airplanes, whether it's a Tiger Moth or a Cornell or a Finch or a Harvard or the fighters, because when they see them and smell them and touch them and, you know, see the pilot get out and see the sweat in the back of their flight suit or something, it makes an impression that they'll never forget. Absolutely. Yeah. Did on me, that's for sure. <laughs> uh, yeah. Were you an air? Yeah. Did you go through? I did do air cadets. Did, yeah. uh, I joined. I joined pretty late though, and I, the the path to getting the, um, the scholarship, it wasn't going to happen for me, so I lost interest. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, but, I mean, uh, uh, it's still a good program for all the all the other things. Uh, you know that. Absolutely. Yeah. Air cadets made a huge difference to me, and uh, my my kids were both in it. You know, I I taught uh, ground school as a volunteer at the local for the flying scholarship pro program at uh, 102 Squadron in Barrie. My wife was a supply officer for a few years. You know, uh, my daughters and my son have had a lot of success in their life, and uh, cadets was a major source of that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, certainly at a young age, it instills some responsibility and discipline and things like that, as, yeah. as well as the, the flying aspects. Yeah, discipline, self-discipline. And also... It, it gets uh, young people out of their nest, right? Out of the protective, away from the protective parents and uh, gives them challenge 
with guidance. And that's the best thing for young people. People, Young people don't need to be protected. They need to be challenged, but in such a way that they have a pretty good chance of accomplishing a goal, right? Once young people understand that they can actually uh, meet a challenge and, and have a really good shot at, at succeeding, then their whole li- outlook on life changes and they do succeed more, right? It just works that way. Yeah. Well, I would say that flight training for a teenager was is probably, I don't have kids, but they're going to get to do it hopefully if I can afford it because it, it gives you that sense of responsibility. Like you're handing a 16-year-old a plane technically or potentially. Yeah, and, yeah absolutely. Uh, that instills a lot of confidence. Yeah. So you've got, I don't know how many hours now, 27,000 or something like that I read. Um, but yeah, 20, 27 or 8, yep. Do you have a piece of advice you'd like to give to either new pilots or pilots in general? Well, if it's someone who's getting into the professional system, like making it a career, um, <clears throat> my advice is always fly the airplane as if you own it. You bought it. You're paying for it. You're paying for the maintenance bills. Um, you know, you're, you're paying for any damage that occurs to it. Anytime, you know, if you ever have owned an airplane, you become aware of a much larger picture than if you just signed it out from the flying school, right? And, um, but, but if you have developed the mindset that, okay, this is my airplane, I'm looking after it today, you will, um, you, you will fly and operate that airplane probably to a safer standard or a standard that looks after the airplane better than if, than, than, you know, if your mind's on other things or if, if for you it's just, you know, sign it out and sign it back in again. And the thing is, uh, a chief pilot or, or someone in a position of authority over you, you know, chief flying instructor or whatever, will recognize that. And that's exactly what they want to see, right? Uh, that's what they're looking for. So, um, yeah, my advice is uh, fly it like it's yours and it's it's yours to, not just you're going to fly it once either, fly it like you're going to be flying it next week and next month and next year. That way you'll look after it. Yeah, that's good advice. (laughs) Um, So I definitely want to invite people to check out your website too, hadfield.ca. Because you have many interests and we barely even scratched the surface. We talked about planes, but... Um, you're into sailing, you're into like outdoor um, paddling and winter camping and you have some pretty cool stuff on there about your your wood stove and that you take with you and um, but also music is a big thing for you um, yep. and so I wanted to kind of end this if if you'll let me by putting one of your songs at the end of the podcast sure and, sure of course uh, uh, I'd, I'd love for I'd love for you to pick your favorite. Um, you you have a whole album of flying songs that I've I've listened to and it's great. Oh, thanks. Yeah, music has always been a great balance in life. You know, if you're in a hardware technical sort of stream in life, it's nice to use the other side of your brain. It's actually restful, and um, it make you know it, it it each side reinforces the other, and makes them better than they were. If you know what I mean, you know. If you can create something artistically, it actually helps you create things in in the hardware world as well. I've always found that way, anyway. And so I've always played music on the side, and uh, uh, it's hard to write songs about airplanes because not too many people get it, right? And you don't want to sound trite. Um, uh, so, uh, 
it's hard to both connect and and and, and you don't want to sound like a cliche so so uh, you know it took quite a while to come up with the album uh, I, that was my fourth album and it probably took 25 years to write all those songs and every once in a while I would come up with another airplane song uh, it's hard to pick favorites here but probably the crossing is the one that's had the most impact with people although um, I have high flight you know the poem high flight it uh, it was put to music uh, for a funeral of a friend of mine a few years ago and then I have a, another a cappella song a short a cappella song about uh, um, you know, uh, losing comrades in during World War II. And maybe that's a bit of a downer. So The Crossing is a, uh, a song that I wrote to uh, to encapsulate and, and memorize for me what it's like to fly an airliner across the North Atlantic. And the standard pattern, the standard pattern that we do as, you know, uh, as a Canadian-based airline company. And, <clears throat> you know, you leave at night, and uh, you leave at 9 o'clock at night and you watch the stars all night and then you get more and more tired then the sun comes up and puts sand in your eyes you know when you're coming into the other side and then there's bad weather in London or Frankfurt or wherever you are and then you have a layover in one of those big cities and you're all out of, wh out of whack on the time zones and then you come back again and um, you're not thinking of what the people in the back are thinking right you're, you're very aware when you cross the coast of Newfoundland and and it's black and dark and cold down there and icy and one of the most hostile places to try and put an airplane down in an emergency that you could possibly imagine. I don't think anyone's ever done it in a jet, and then not in the North Atlantic. And uh, you're very aware again on the other side when you're within gliding distance of Ireland, right? So uh, that, that whole experience was five years of my life on the 330, I fl the Airbus 330 as a captain. and. Um, you do a lot of trips, right? In order to make up a month's flying of 80 or 85 hours, it's uh, five or six trips a month. Each one's a three-day trip. They're not that productive, you know. And uh, your, your brains get scrambled. Your whole sense of time zone, diurnal stress is at the maximum. And uh, it's it's very hard on the body. I think you age about two for one when you're doing it that way. And uh, the, the duty rigs have changed recently, and there's some relief pilots. We never had them. And that would have made things a lot more restful. Anyway, before I left it to go on to the 777 and start flying to China, which I did for my last uh, six years, I, I wrote that song called uh, The Crossing. So uh, I put as many references to the actual flight into it as I could so it would awake my memory later in life. Nice. That's a great way to capture the memory. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you for joining me. That was... Uh, Awesome. I'm, we could chat for hours. I have so many questions, but and but uh, maybe I'll catch up with you in Ottawa at some point. Yeah, or pick your brain or, or BC. I might come out and do yeah. a musical tour there whenever we all get vaccinated. Uh, I was yeah, I was thinking great. of doing a concert tour next winter, so I might come out there at that point. But but cool. you're very welcome in Ottawa. And I should say here, I actually didn't say it well enough earlier. It's Vintage Wings of Canada. That is the is the charitable organization, and uh, the it's it's in conjunction with Mike Potter is the gentleman who owns the airplanes the fighters although vintage wings have some aircraft of their own the hangar is at the Gatineau Airport it's a museum and if you go onto the website vintagewings.ca we'll find it for you uh, you can make a phone call you can make an arrangement you can have a tour we have lots of volunteers that will give you a tour and it's uh, these are all flying airplanes or at least 
airplanes that have flown or will fly, you know, depending on the maintenance situation. But yeah, they're flying airplanes and it's all done without a dime of any government money. So it's just yep. uh, the vision of a group of wonderful and dedicated people. It's well worth, well worth a visit. And if you, you can pair it with a trip to the Air and Space Museum. And it yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they, they have <laughs> so. a, a wonderful set of displays, too. And uh, they don't they don't have any flying airplanes, but uh, sometimes we'll bring airplanes yeah. over to visit with them. Thanks, Dave, for diving into the world of warbirds with us. As mentioned, if you'd like to hear more about his adventures and music, check out Hadfield.ca. I'll also post a link to his YouTube channel in the show notes. This is The Crossing by Dave Hadfield. There's Polaris over my shoulder As I rise into the night I'll cross the dark Atlantic And land in dawn's grey light The Dipper rotates slowly Orion rises high And I can tell how long I've sat By their angle in the sky The clearance comes from Gander That checks each ten degrees I can see track Victor By the lights preceding And here I sit in the captain's chair As Newfoundland goes behind I cannot see black water But it's not far from my mind And all my bones are a part of this ship Till we reach the Irish shore Like the captains who came before all the captains who came before We make the call to Shanwick And doze till 20 west Drinking endless coffee Many hours until we rest we see the lights of Shannon The stars begin to fade We pull out charts and brief ourselves For Heathrow's promenade Descend and pull at Ockham The ILS awaits Touchdown in the fog and mist Shut down at the gate And here I sit in the captain's chair As Newfoundland goes behind I cannot see black water But it's not far from my mind And all my bones are a part of this ship Till we reach the Irish shore like the captains who came before All the captains who came before Oh, the early morning traffic is thick 
As we ride into London town It's late, yet it's early When we Walk in Regent's Park Happy hour pints Then out to me And here I sit In the captain's chair As Ireland goes behind I cannot see black water, but it's not far from my mind. And all my bones are a part of this ship till we come to Labrador, like the captains who came before. All the captains who came And now, you have control.